to a very special edition of Aerospace NOTAM podcast from the Royal Aeronautical Society. Uh, my name is Tim Robinson, Editor-in-Chief of Aerospace uh, Magazine, and I'm joined by Stephen Bridgewater, Deputy Editor. Welcome, Stephen. Hello. Hi, how are you? Very good, thank you. So we, what are we talking about today? Well, we have just come back from a, an intensive uh, two-day conference at RES HQ, landmark conference, the RES Future Combat Air and Space uh, Capabilities Summit. Uh, and I think it's fair to say that both of our minds have been completely blown. Uh, oh, under yeah. just about almost 70 speakers, 200 plus delegates from the armed services, industry, academia, uh, and the media from around the world to discuss and debate the future size and shape of tomorrow's combat air and space capabilities. Um, covering everything from, so this covered everything from resilience, agile operations, lessons from Ukraine, interoperability, space, multi-domain operations, future six-gen platforms, loyal wingman, training, cyber, simulation, skills, um, AI, deterrence and hypersonics, uh, and even, even science fiction's uh, role in predicting the future. I mean, what what did you think, uh, what did you make of it, uh, Steve? As you say, Tim, I mean, completely mind-blowing. Um, just such a diverse range of speakers. And very speaking very candidly as well. I mean, you know, as you said, we've had everything from cyber lessons in Ukraine to uh, you know, the latest developments in space warfare and, and um, you know, very, very high ranking and, and um, respected lecturers and presenters talking very candidly. Yeah, and, and the summit had an extremely strong international presence as well. I mean, we, we had obviously speakers from the from the US, uh, France, Germany, Brazil, Greece uh, and, and Sweden, Sweden and Japan, uh, you know, so so really sort of. Uh, you know, a global uh, presence. I mean, that's that's really representing the intense interest uh, around the world of, um, you know, the, this new era of geostrategic competition, peer-on-peer -peer state warfare, and everyone really thinking about, well, you know, are our forces ready? What do we need for the future? Um, and again, a range of organisations, um, you know, RAF, NATO, USAF, UK Strategic Command, French Air Force, Greek Army, uh, industry as well, beer systems, Lockheed Marketing, Skunk Works, uh, Draken Europe, Reaction Engines, Think Tanks, Academia, uh, yeah. British Army, Royal Navy, uh, you name it. Yeah, yeah, it just yeah, as you say, that that really eclectic mix. I mean, you know, to Excel were there, you know, lots of, of of British companies, but just having that mix with like so the likes of Lockheed Martin, Skunk Works, and people like that, really, really interesting. So uh, what, I think one, let's start off. One, we, we're not, we, it's impossible to cover it all, uh, and, and, and the, the amount of uh, the amount of presentations that were over over two days and in, in two separate tracks as well. But one of the one of the key things that me that uh, for me that jumped out was uh, this focus on resilience, agility, uh, agile combat employment, uh, as it's termed, ACE, uh, and how important that is. So um, you know, people people there talking about keeping air forces on the move, hiding, dispersing. Um, hardening, but also um, yeah. defending. You know, so so I think there was a really interesting interesting comment there of uh, you know one size does not fit all. Uh, people were looking there and talking about you know Finland and 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 that was that, what what the Finns are doing is really impressive. We see a new NATO member. What the Swedes are doing. We had a presentation with the chief of uh, air force from the Swedish air sorry not the chief of uh, chief of plans from the Swedish air force. 
of how they keep on the move. Uh, you know, they disperse out some of their forward operating bases. They're only expected to be there for about a, co a couple of hours uh, and then they, they move on. And uh, with the grip and, you know, they, they can rearm and re refuel for a an air to air mission in under 10 minutes. Yeah, incredible, isn't it? Um, so that that was interesting. And um, so a, a look at that. And that's that's one of the obviously that's one of the, the key lessons that has uh, come out of, of Ukraine as to, to why the Ukrainian Air Force has, has managed to survive is they 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 put this into practice. They've they've trained for this and they've they've kind of gone to ground, and uh, the Russians haven't been able to destroy them. Yeah, and as you say, the the the, uh, the conference was so big that it, it was a lot of the of the sessions were split into two. So I know you covered some of them and I covered some of the upstairs um, presentations, Tim. And and I was also listening to um, Lieutenant Colonel Johnny Reisman, who's uh, the Chief Cyber Development Officer for the Swedish Air Force. Uh -huh. And um, he again lessons from Ukraine. He, he came up with a very poignant comment. He said. If Russia manages to maintain the foothold that it's got in Ukraine at the moment, we won't be looking at an iron curtain. We'll be looking at an iron dome and, uh, you know, and missile defences right from the Kola Peninsula down to the Black Sea. And uh, he said, you know, this, the cyber realm is becoming even more important in this. And you know, as he summed it up, we need to exploit this or we'll be exploited ourselves. I think just so many different lessons coming out of Ukraine for you know, on a, a tactical level, on a cyber level on a resilience level and also that sort of joined up thinking as well of people you know, collaborating not just with um, other military arms but also with the civilian sector as well. Uh, definitely yeah uh, so I mean, how it's sort of shaping uh, kind of future uh, you know military procurement future platforms future fighters drones etc uh, again another another highlight for me was uh, hearing more progress about uh, GCAP so this is the global combat air program now uh, last year you remember from Farmer last year, we had the announcement of there's going to be a flying uh, demonstrator within the next uh, five years. So that's going to be the next four years now. And yep. uh, in December, we had the announcement that Japan was joining it, joining uh, Italy and the UK, broadening out the, um, you know, broadening out the, 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 the kind of uh, partnership, making it fully global, um, really exciting stuff, you know. Uh, and one of the things that, that, that you know one of the the highlights really was uh we had uh the head of the uh uk uh kind of fcas um uh there richard burfon who's director of future combat air uk mod he was there on the same panel with the major general jean-luc moritz head of the scaf so that's the the uh franco german spanish uh, future fighter, future systems of systems program, French Air Force. He he was on the same panel. I think that's probably the first time they've they've appeared together. And mm. one of the most significant things there was how um, how much is in common with him. You know, people we, we like to paint the, the, this this is as oh, well. There's there's two fighter programs in Europe, and uh, mm -hmm. you know they're in each other's throats. And obviously there's an element of that in the exports. Uh, yeah. But what the um uh, what major general moritz said was uh you know he, he went further on the, on the collaboration said my dream is tomorrow a tempest could take control of a ngws asset so ngws is obviously their version of the tempest it's the core platform or mm -hmm. my dream is that ngad can take control of an fcash uk and a rafael and tempest could fly together in a joint operation yeah. um 
so real sort of deep interoperability and i think one of the things there is that uh, one of the things that struck me also is uh, you mentioned the a2 ad challenge and uh, mm -hmm. the, the the threat there the the, the pacing uh, challenges some some people sort of call it pacing threat of China it's got mass it's got the technology you know it's got quality and quantity and uh, I think you know that there's been a wake-up call uh, you know Washington at least the US has now realized it cannot do it alone it cannot go it alone yeah. it needs allies and it needs uh, it needs allies with slightly different capabilities so the idea that yes okay NGAD GCAP, uh, SCAF uh, are all three different fighter, you know, combat aircraft platforms. Uh, they've got systems of system stuff. They compete in some respects, but in some respects, they're actually stronger together. And actually, you need them all because of what, um, you know, the potential peer threats are uh, of, of yeah. tomorrow. So that, that I think, is really, was, came out sort of really, really interesting. You know, we, 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 everybody needs everybody else, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so, so cyber lessons for, for, from Ukraine, uh, obviously interoperability, collaboration. I think another thing that jumped out strongly for me as well was uh, looking at the idea of combat clouds, data sharing networks. It's very interesting. Uh, one of the one of the speakers made the the, uh, uh, the statistic distinction between a fifth generation platform, which sucks up data and uh, but keeps it within its own secure networks um um it, it kind of a, a selfish beast i think was the phrase uh <laughs> used uh and sixth generation which should be designed from the outset to share information and share information around the, around the networks you know from naturally from the outset so yeah you know that that's one of the things that that has been a a challenge in in, in kind of recent years is yeah you've got uh, these great um uh you know Fifth generation platforms like F thirty five. How do you get that that off off the the data off the platform to a typhoon? How do you share it down to other people? But sixth generation that, that that's what we're looking at is is should be able to do it naturally. Uh, um, yeah, and that's something that was covered again. But I, one of the lectures that I was in was um, Wing Commander Dave Collins, who's um, director of the RS Air Cyber and Information Services Centre, and uh, he was saying that. One of the things that's come out of Ukraine is we've never had a conflict that has created so much data. Yeah, and there's just, just the incredible open source data coming out as well. And he made the point that some of the reports that are being published by Microsoft, if they'd been published by the Ministry of Defense, would have had top secret stamped all over them. But we've got access to this huge amount of data now. But what do we do with it? How, you know, how do we utilize that for the, the best effect? And we're almost at the stage of being swamped with information. And he's, you know, he, he did pose the question, say, yeah, can we realistically, with all this data, protect everything? You know, or should we have to learn with it? You know, we're so reliant on on the cyber domain now for everyday function, you know, whether it's taking money out of a cash point or the traffic lights working, that, you know, do we have to accept that we get to a point in a time of, of crisis where we can't protect everything and we have to prioritise what it is we're doing with the masses of information that's coming in? And, and the the I mean the 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 use the role of of commercial data um, you know driving supporting sort of defence operations I mean that that was something that was raised by uh, Vice Marshal Paul Godfrey head of UK Space Command wasn't it I mean he he sort of said how that they UK Space Command is leveraging the commercial sector 
uh, via the yeah. Joint Tax Force Space Defense Commercial Operations Cell, so JCO, uh, and that uses commercial sensors, commercial information, commercial sort of tracking uh, data uh, that is unclassified. So he was able to talk at the, you know, freely at this conference about uh, a Luch, Luch, uh, military communication satellite that uh, had been um, uh, sort of sidling up to an Intel Sat 27, and this thing's got this thing's got a um, you know electronic intelligence payload on it. Um, you know, previously you wouldn't be able to talk about that in open um, yeah. you know open forums like this, uh, but it's now building uh, transparency, awareness, and, and trust. Um, so uh, no, really interesting. And I think also interesting there was a, a later presentation. Uh, again from Space Command about uh, how the UK is is uh, looking at its overseas territory. Um, you know, we've got places like Ascension, we've got places like Falkland Islands. As well, could could you put a, a, a space, uh, you know, space domain awareness sensor on there? Could you utilise, yeah. um, you know, you utilise that geographic spread we've got, um, much reduced obviously from the old days, uh, but it's still there and it's it's still it still gives the UK a potential you know unique niche that yeah. in in filling these gaps up in in looking up up there and seeing what what's going on it is it's interesting you're saying about working collaboration with industry and this commercially available material um i was listening to dr dan clark who was a lecturer at cranfield defense and security and he has spent um, time in the civilian sector as well working on autonomous cars and, and robotics and things like that and uh, again, he came out with a really interesting point in saying yeah, that a lot of the software stack that was developed back in sort of 2004, 2005 for the grand challenge for autonomous cars is the same software stack that's now being used on autonomous vehicles in the military. So resupply vehicles, things like that. And I know this is you know, a, a, a land domain rather than an aviation subject, but yeah, these so we, we've, there have already been examples where people have hacked autonomous cars. You know, there, there was a, a case it was about 2015 where, you know, you, you could turn off a car. You could even make your own face appear on the sat-nav screen. You know, the, the, these things aren't invulnerable. So he said, well, we get then get to a point where we've seen in Ukraine that the rapid and reliable supply of equipment and food and munitions to the front line is essential. We've, you know, we all remember those big columns of, of, of Russian um vehicles clogged up in the mud trying to get the supplies in in the early days well why do we have to bomb a, a supply vehicle when we can simply turn it off you know, or, or take that to another another level and, and dan said well you know why are we going to shoot down an aircraft when we can just steer the pilot's car into a ditch before he's even reached the airfield you know it takes warfare to a whole new level that um, you know the cyber is absolutely incredible but it's also opens up all sorts of vulnerabilities that yeah, there are lots of unknown unknowns to coin a phrase. Yeah, well, another another standout um, another standout uh, presentation for, for for me was the uh, the head of of UK uh, so head of USAF uh, flight test chief of AI test and operations USAF. So that was Colonel Tucker Cinco Hamilton, who actually gave a a, a tour de force on 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 AI and and particularly so obviously. AI was a major theme of the conference, but um, he's right at the cutting edge of testing this for, um, you know, kind of military applications, what the USF is doing now, autonomous F-16s that can dogfight, you know, 
and um, and and putting that into service. But he he came up with a absolutely uh, you know kind of jaw dropping example where, and it sounds like something out of a science fiction film. Really, is that that um, a a small drone that uh, had they'd been testing in a simulation. I hasten to add, um, and they'd been training in a simulation to identify and kill a a, a sam threat and. Uh, the final approval was given by a human operator and the they trained it by giving it points to to kill the sam uh you know reinforcement learning in a way and uh it uh he, he revealed he said oh well it uh you know we'd tell it not to uh it, it realized that um you know sometimes it didn't get permission to not to kill the the the, the threat but it got points by killing the threat so it, he decided it would kill the operator <laughs> uh, uh, no, and he said it, it killed the operator because that person was keeping from it a formal accomplishment objective. So, so then they decided to say, try and say, hey, you know, don't kill the operator. That, that's that's not the right. You're going to lose points. It then decided to take out the communication tower that connected it with the <laughs> operator. Um, so, I mean, that that's uh, so he he was very very you know he's he, his his job is is testing flight testing and testing this this sort of stuff that the the US is is hoping to introduce Skyborg is the, is the kind of the operating system that they're going to have in their in their the kind of loyal wingman or collaborative combat aircraft. But um, he was he said you know be very careful you know uh, AI is is easy to trick it's 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 easy to deceive. Uh, and it can create highly unexpected strategies, and it, it also doubles down on its mistakes. Um, you know, in, yeah. in that uh, you can you can trick it with different, uh, uh, you know, different sort of like visual stuff, and uh, it, you know, it will say, no, no, I'm 99 percent. That's a tank. You know, even if it's a, a school bus. So yeah, oh. a real, really eye-opening stuff uh, for, for, from uh, Cinco. Uh, and, and again, on, on a tech subject, um, one of the opening sessions on um, the first day was by um, Dr. Arif Mustafa, who's the RAF's chief digital information officer. And lots of uh, very high level things in there. But just one comment that I really took away was, you know, we're looking at, um, at, at Tempest and, and GCAP coming into service and maybe remaining in service until 2080. And uh, Arif pointed out that, you know, he had his first computer in 1982. He said it was Commodore 64, if you remember the Commodore 64. He said that was 1982. It was just three years after Tornado entered service, what, 1979. He said Tornado continued in service until 2020. He said at that point, he got a PlayStation 5. So we've gone from a Commodore 64 to a PlayStation 5 in the lifespan of a Tornado. He said, now, compared to the Commodore 64, the computing power of that PlayStation, the processing powers to the power of 10 billion times greater. So he said, you know, in four decades, you know, you've had all these other developments as well, like yeah, widespread access to the internet, mobile phones. So if we're developing Tempest now, where will we be in 2080? And this is why it's vital that, in his opinion, and I think a lot of people, that a craft like this is designed that it can be upgradable. You know, there are gonna be such paradigm shifts in technology between now and 2080 that um, you know, this thing has to be updatable to things that we haven't even conceived yet. As you were talking there about AI potentially taking out its operator, I mean, things that seem like science fiction maybe a few years ago are almost science fact now, aren't they? 
Yeah, uh, but I mean, I, I, that was interesting on on the idea of, I mean, um, so uh, one, one of the presentations was from Herman Clausen from uh, Managing Director of FCAS BA Systems. So he is the uh, leading the kind of almost leading the, the industrial effort of uh, sort of, uh, you know, as the lead company in T -Temp, Team Tempest in the UK on on, G, on GCAP. And, uh, you know, he, he sort of, I think he, one of the phrases he said was that, uh, you know, Tempest or, or FCAS will have a, uh, you know, it will have an in-service date and a, you know, initial operating capability, but it'll never have a full operating capability because it will yeah. always be spirally updated um, and, yes. and, and and updated and updated. So, um, you know, he was he was talking about the next uh, milestones. Um, so they've got another 12 months. Uh, you know, we're now in the concept and assessment phase, uh, and then we go to the outline business case number two. So this is assembling all the supporting uh, evidence, technology, all the all the kind of research that's begun on prior to the kind of full board balloon launch, full balloon design and development program is the start of 2025. Then uh, we're, we're aiming for the in-service date of uh, 20. 2035 and also obviously there's going to be a supersonic stealthy demonstrator uh flying yeah. within the next four years uh so that's gonna be really exciting it, absolutely yeah really exciting stuff uh, um and then one thing that, that struck me over the last couple of days was that extremes in platforms that we've discussed so everything from tempest and and, and space warfare but if you look back at the Ukraine conflict, the amount of small commercial off-the-shelf drones that have been used, and uh, and I, I um, spoke to a number of people that um, you know, felt this was you know a really interesting development and something that we need to um, to again employ or either employ ourselves or or work out how we need to counter this. And I know the latest issue of the magazine of Aerospace Magazine, we've got a feature from Dr. Dave Sloggett on um, you know how we counter small UAV type graphs so the commercial off the shelf quad drone, if you like. Um, but there was a lot of discussion on 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 that. And uh, one of our, our speakers who was Charlie Lynn, who's the chief of staff of the MOD's joint county UAS office, uh, had some really interesting comments and pointing out that you know, the, the speed spectrum that these things are operating in is so vast. So you've got the some of the, the smaller craft that are flying very low, very slow, making them very difficult to target either on radar or even with a visual eye. But then you've got these racing drones now, which have got speeds yeah. of up to 250 miles an hour, which are being converted for nefarious use, shall we say, within but by both sides in Ukraine. Um, and that, of course, gets into a question then. If if both sides are operating similar drones, well, how do you know which one's yours? You paint rounds using on. them on different. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. Paint rounds on, round on it. It's not going to work, is it? <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, but you've also got drones using for a multitude of uses. They could be cargo supply. They could be, you know, SIGINTs. They could have a, a hand grenade underneath them or some sort of improvised um, device. Well, we don't know. And, you know, th there's a whole question here about how we identify these craft, not just friend or foe. But if it's a foe, what sort of foe is it? So I think yeah. there's, there's a lot of research to be done into this. And as um, as uh, Charlie pointed out, that yeah, in Ukraine, we're not seeing drones evolving over days and months and years. They're evolving over hours. You know, yes, things are changing yeah. here. You know, is you know, it's not a, a necessarily a bespoke unit you're buying off the shelf. You're you're buying a generic unit and modifying it in the field. So you know, the one that you've modified may be very different to the one that your 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 colleague two trenches down is using. 
So yeah, um, yeah it's it's just a really interesting uh, thing. And the other thing that, that struck with me on that is um, we had a, a group there from the, the British Army, from the Royal Yeomanry. And, um, you know, and this is a reserve unit. Um, Red, um, we've got their, their XO there, Major Arthur Purbrick. And they're looking to create their own RPAS units, their, their own remote, remotely piloted air system. They said they are, they are a, um, a light reconnaissance unit. And in time of conflict, they would be expected to be operating forward of the of the active line. And as I said, probably forward of any conventional UAS systems. And they said the Ukraine has proved this and, and so has, has Nagorno-Karabakh as well. So these guys have put their hand in their own pocket, quite literally got their credit cards out and are collaborating with a, a Leicester based company called Skylift. Right. And um, they've got um, yeah, a, a they're developing their own quadcopter drone to suit their own needs for this reservist unit. Wow. Um, and yeah, the army have got drones. We know that. They're, you know, they've, they've they've got some quite a, quite sophisticated kit. They've got some very expensive kit. And I just wanted to, to read you a very funny comment that Major Perbrick made. Actually, he said um, the Queen's Dragoon Guards are fresh back from Mali. He said they took 30 UAVs out with them and they came back with two. He said they broke, they got lost, they deteriorated in the in the conditions they were operating in. And he said there aren't many trees in Mali, but they managed to find some of them. And I thought it's just you know you you've got a craft there which is relatively inexpensive but it's also quite complex to fix so what the guys at the royal yeomanry are looking at doing is developing a system which the guy on the ground can fix you know it's an eminently survivable bit of kit or it's cheap enough that it's almost a disposable bit of kit and um you know the 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 issue they're going to have is trying to get this approved through the military through the maa system and that's what they came to the conference for and yeah. to, you know that that to, to actually ask for advice from people from industry, from people from the MOD, from all the other military arms that were there to say, look, this is what we want to do. This is who we're working with. Can you help us to create the system that we want? And they, they freely admitted that they were going to have a struggle if it comes to a framework that allows them to drop but, stuff from this in a you know a, a kinetic warfare kind of way. So, but, but you know we need something that can be a, a you know a mobile command and control center or a Wi-Fi router or an iStar platform, or just to re- broadcast radio transmissions back to high miles units or something like that. So I thought that was interesting to hear from an army point of view, to see yeah. them coming and talking and asking for advice from, and again, that goes back, I think, to that overarching theme of collaboration that we've seen over the last few days. But I mean, the, the question there is, is that if you've got a uh, if you've got a, a drone that where you can expect it uh, to, to just last in days, in a peer-on-peer conflict, which is what we're seeing in, in Ukraine, you know, uh, these small uh, quadcopter drones, they, they just last a, a, a few days. Um, yeah. Why do you, why, why would you need to go through the whole um, certification, MAA approval thing? You know, they're, they're basically a hand grenade. Uh, or exactly. A, uh, you know, I, I can't remember who it was, but one of the, what, yeah, one of the, one of the rec- lectures that I was listening to, I can't remember which one it was now, but pointed out that the average lifespan of a UAV in Ukraine is between three and six sorties. You know, they yeah. really are disposable things. Yeah. And again, bringing that full circle now, we also had um, a presentation by Stephen Hesker, who is involved in the, um, the the Reaper and the Predator that the RAF have got. And he's deputy, deputy chief engineer for the Protector system, which yeah. is coming into service this year. So we've gone now from a, a bespoke quadcopter fit in the palm of your hand drone 
to a you know a a, a big it's based on the the MQ9 the Sky Guardian, um, and um, Stephen described this as the world's first certifiable RPAS. So again, we get into this issue of certifying. So Protector is different to the previous um, uh, the Reaper and the Predator that we've had because it can fly in controlled airspace. It's got TCAS, it's got ADS-B, it's got IFF, and that means that it can fly in airspace with other aircraft, whereas previously you know, um, Reapers had to have segregated airspace. But of course, this all comes with a, a time and a monetary cost, and this has had to be approved by the UK MAA. And not only is Protector the first certified RPAS, it's also the first air system that the MAA has certified from scratch itself. Ah. So Stephen and his team have been working effectively as the go-between between, a general, a, between General Atomics and the MAA. And he said there have been around 1,700 individual requirements that General Atomics have had to prove to him, his team, and his team have had to approve to the MAA to prove that it can meet the safety legislation to fly in commercially available civilian airspace. He said this has been a 10 year program, so it's not a rapid capability. And that's why it's cost in excess of wait for this a billion pounds to bring into service. Wow. So we've got you know, we've got the extreme of, you know, the guys of the Royal Yeomanry with a you know a quadcopter in their hand and then the Royal Air Force with an incredibly capable bit of kit. And this is by no means a disposable bit of kit, but it's taken 10 years and a billion dollars to bring to service. So do we need to find somewhere in between where we can get that rapid capability that we need without the the red tape and the infrastructure? And I should say that that protectors coming into service. Well, the first one is expected at RF Waddington later this year, probably around October, and uh, it will fly in UK airspace before the end of 2023. And it's currently planned to be in service date of Q3 of next year. So this is an incredible bit of kit that we are getting. Um, and it will operate from RF Waddington, it'll operate from the UK because uh, it's got an automatic takeoff and landing capability, Tim. So whereas previously Reaper has operated around the world, you've always had to have somebody on the ground where that is operating from, whether it's out in, in Afghanistan or wherever it happens to be. Yeah. So th- with Protector, the team can be completely based at Waddington. Uh, the aircraft could take off and land somewhere completely different. It could take off and land at Waddington. You don't have to be with it on the ground to do it. Yeah. And uh, I mean, of course, that raises a question as well. We, you know, we, you, know you, you spoke about agile combat employment earlier on. Well, Waddington is going to be the centre for these RPAS UAS units. And somebody did ask Stephen, you know, yeah, where is the resilience in this? If you've got all of your equipment, all of your staff in one facility at Waddington, and he was quite open and said, yeah, you know, if something genuinely catastrophic does happen to Waddington, we lose this capability. Um, but he said in their experience with Reaper and the way the system's being designed, he said, I would suggest that the threat that we see in the UK is a single operating location. We've got sufficient resilience in the current environment. But, you know, it's uh, it's something to bear in mind from a, from a, an agile combat employment point of view. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, I think also having the, the thing that strikes me from that is having done the having done the the legwork and the homework in certif- certifying it you know certificating it for to to fly in uh controlled airspace um you've done the hard work you know the next one there will be much much easier i mean it, it, yeah. it's interesting there that we 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 spent this money on it and it's taken a long time and it's been obviously highly complex but 
Germany, uh, they were supposed to buy the, uh, something called the Eurohawk, which was the uh, development of the Global Hawk, uh, mm-hmm. you know, high flying, uh, you know, basically unmanned, uh, uncrewed U2. Uh, and they they that they wasted money buying it, uh, and then they realised it, it it couldn't fly where they wanted it to. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So very interesting. And the, the other thing that uh, another one that uh, a highlight for me was actually um, the uh, 2XL revealing more details about uh, the technology test bed uh, for FCAS uh, Tempest, which is going to be a converted. Uh, converted some five seven, uh, so oh, they're gonna yeah. So they 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 actually bought two seven five sevens, and they're they're ripping one. They were they ripped one to bits, completely dissembled dissembled it uh, to turn it into a digital twin. So um, you know they've got this this airliner and they've pulled it completely apart to measure the 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 mass. Uh, the balance, uh, the structure, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, because they're going to put, be putting these these uh, antennas, dishes, uh, radar cones, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, on it uh, to support the Team Tempest uh, effort uh, and to turn it into this air, flying airborne laboratory, which will be just absolutely stuffed with uh, you know next generation radars, sensors, uh, the virtual cockpit. Um, so you know they wanted to find out. If you put, a, you know, if you swap the the the, the, the tiny weather radar in the nose for a for a fighter sized radar, what's that going to do to the COG? You know, is is the nose going to fall off when you land? Um, <laughs> yeah, so they, uh, you know, so uh, Chris Norton, there, director of Two XL, said, uh, you know, in short, we've turned millions of pounds of 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 aircraft into millions of pounds worth of of uh, tens of millions of pounds worth of, of data. Uh, it's ex- extreme. Yeah. Uh, but it's going to prove our model. Uh, and what's interesting there is that 2XL. So, you know, they've 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 gone on this journey where they have um, kind of um, sort of ended up doing lots of stuff. You know, design in house, uh, MRO in house, uh, and so it's that they so a bit a bit like the um, Hill helicopters model of we, we're going to do it in house because we then we control the risk, we control the schedule. Um, and and nothing can you know we we can we can we can convert a King Air to a uh, you know a maritime patrol aircraft or maritime mm-hmm. surveillance aircraft in eight months. You know wow. we're not we're okay. not waiting on anybody else. So yeah, that was that was really interesting stuff. And 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 they are obviously on the lookout for engineers there as to 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 uh, to uh, bring Excalibur, uh, you know, and convert this aircraft. Brilliant. And there was um, there were subject of engineers. There was a number of uh, of lectures that I attended, which were talking about the need for more engineers and the, the need for more apprenticeships and um, just a general need for more engineers across engineering, not just the aerospace sector. So um, it's, um, it's I think it's projects like Excalibur that have got that that cool factor, if you like, that will hopefully inspire those people to uh, to join industry. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Mm-hmm. And the, uh, uh, one of the other oh, people I want to talk about is that um, towards the end of day two, I attended a, a lecture by Blythe Crawford, who was commandant of the Air and Space Warfare Centre. And yeah. um, he, he talks about the dangerous decade um, that we're in at the moment. You know, in, he said, we, we, people have often theorised what would happen after the 15 to 20 years after the Cold War and the, the Berlin Wall came down. And we, you know, we'd lived in uh, 
relative peace and he said uh, with you know we are now in that that dangerous decade and um again he, he touched on that cross collaboration between the civilian sector and the military world and in ukraine pointed out that you know, well how do you actually measure a nation's military capability because if you look at ukraine now he argued that probably 30 percent of its military capabilities are provided by the civilian sector so you know you've got starlink providing communications you've got anonymous conducting offensive cyber operations on their behalf you're using twitter for the geolocation of, of targets and yeah, you're crowdsourcing data through through Twitter. So, you know, does that class as military? Where where does that fall within the military civilian domain? And the point he was trying to make and got to was, you know, he he cautioned that we assume that whatever conflict will happen in the future, the organisations like Starlink and Anonymous would take our side. Well, mm. what happens if they don't agree with us? Yeah, what yeah. happens if yeah we 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 end up in a conflict of choice rather than necessity and these groups don't take up our moral imperative or you know they decide to remain neutral or worse still they they side with whoever the opposition is and um yeah i think the, there are there were lots of theoretical questions like that posed over the last two days which i found really fascinating not just looking at the nuts and bolts and and um, gigapixels of, of of what's coming in terms of hardware and software in the future, but just the the bigger questions like uh, like that, which I that was something I found really interesting at, uh, at the summit. Yeah, I mean there was there was a, I mean a, not on 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 that sort of thing, but there was a uh, a kind of a, a wake up call to to me as well that uh, very sobering uh, presentation uh, from. Uh, uh, Dr. Wynne Bowen from the um, co-director of the Freeman Air and Space Institute, who was uh, talking about sort of uh, uh, deterrence um, and, and, and the fact that nuclear war uh, is back. You know, uh, you may not be interested in nuclear war, but uh, by golly, nuclear war is, is interested in you. Um, thanks to, yeah. uh, you know, Putin's warnings of escalation and uh, red lines and, and, and what have you over the past we, we, we've, we've seen. Um, he, he he sort of said that uh, you know it's now a it's now an even more complex thing because you've got a, a two peer issue of deterring both China and Russia you know so that's creating yeah. new complexities challenges how do you reassure allies you know what is what what lessons is China taking from uh, Ukraine etc cetera, etc cetera. Mm. but um, I mean one thing that that stood up for me as well was uh, you know he he thought that should Ukraine decide to <coughs> recapture Crimea. Um, so this is a major strategic naval base for, um, you know, the Russians. Uh, yeah. Ukraine is already attacking into it. They're already attacked, attacked the bridge there. Uh, but he thought that, the, that that could be the trigger for, for Russia to cross the nuclear threshold uh, with tactical nuclear weapons, you know. Uh, and he, yeah. he, he thought there wouldn't be any warning shots. He said, you know, the Russians wouldn't bother with that. And it would be two or three military targets. And that, these could even be... Um, across the border in supply hubs and training hubs right. in places like Poland. Wow. Which is very, yeah. very, um, you know, yeah. uh, sobering, isn't it? Uh, sobering in, in indeed as to well, what, what's, what, what would what would NATO's reaction by that? And, and the, the Russians, 
rationale yeah. would be well you, you're you're firing high mars into into our territory you know yeah 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 you're 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 firing storm shadows into into places uh you know that where you know our territory our claimed territory yeah. um yeah. We're, we're doing it back yeah. but they've got no they've got no or little um you know kind of distinction between uh conventional you know a, a conventional weapons and a, a low yield tactical nuclear weapon yeah i there were there were lots of these sort of alarming warning shots if you like of of what the future might hold hold and one actually came from mark thomas from reaction engines who oh, was right, talking yeah. about the yeah the development of hypersonics and um, he pointed out that um, yeah there's a lot of focus at the moment on on hypersonics yeah we know yeah Russia's um, thought to have used uh, hypersonic weapons in Ukraine you know, they're thought to have encountered by um, Western supplied um, counter devices but he said we there needs to be more research in this and and the the statistic that I found really alarming so, you know we said we're not just talking about two or three times more development here he said you know if you look at China. Estimates currently range that there's between 50 and 100 times more hypersonic testing being undertaken in China than the US right now. You know, and we're falling rapidly falling behind in the West. And um, so there's there's lots of areas that I think, you know, we've talked about cyber. We've talked about yeah, RPAS and, and UAS. You know, there are lots of areas where we need to focus. And it's a case of policy decisions on, on where, you know, what funding we have available and how we allocate that to hypersonics at one extreme and um, you know the the DGI Mavic at the other end um, and and what we do so it, it was interesting and, and really refreshing to see people from so many different backgrounds at the summit talking very freely on this subject and hopefully there was um, there's some good think tanking going on. Yeah, well uh, another another session that uh, was was interesting as well was uh, on training. So we had a whole. Um, uh, panel there on 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 training and, and and particularly interesting was there on the the live virtual mix. So obviously people in that are have, have talked about uh, you know move move to move to synthetic training. Uh, there's there's lots of good reasons for that. Uh, saving costs, security. So don't don't let the enemy what you see what you're doing. Um, saving the environment. I mean you know burning less fuel. Uh, but there are also drawbacks as well in in in, in terms of if your your simulators aren't uh, aren't reliable enough, um, they're they're in heavy use, um, and what they're actually teaching, um, you know, what are you actually teaching? So the RAF's uh, flight training uh, pl uh, pipeline has obviously been in the news recently. There's been holes there. It seems to be up at the the kind of OCU end. Uh, yeah. But there was a presentation by uh, Group Captain Rob Kane, Commandant No. 6 Flying Training School, who was saying, you know, you've got to consider the training system as a whole, right from, you know, nine-year-olds, STEM en engage engagement to air cadets to young people, right through to the, to the frontline combat ready pilots. And he also said, you know, he said, well, you know, more thought needs to be what what is the definition uh, that you what what are we asking for you know is it is a trained fighter pilot um you know ready ready to join a squadron are they are they just a, like a, a expected to be a wingman you know just sort of report um 
you know, just keep an eye on keep an eye on lead report. Um, you know, not not do anything too stupid, or do you want them to to lead four ship strike packages? Do you want them to to be able to to plan complex strikes? Uh, that's that sort of thing. Um, so mm-hmm. that that was quite interesting stuff, and also how how the basic fighting fundamentals, may, uh, you know, have static. It's remained static for for decades. So you know, take off, chocks away. Uh, you know follow two etc cetera, etc cetera, fluid four all the same stuff that's now changed um mm-hmm. today's fighter pilot you know that there's uh needs to understand interpret complex information so a basic fighter fundamental now might be interpreting the sar radar display in an f-35 uh, because yeah. the simulation of that and the real thing are not the same and and uh there was an f-35 pilot there who said well you know you 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 were uh, uh, you know, you, you, if you put put, uh, put somebody there and first time you put them in the the F thirty five and they see the real thing, they're like, what what the heck's going on here? It, it needs <laughs> it needs um, you know, and that the F thirty five is probably you know one of the top aircraft in sensor fusion and 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 presenting that to pilot, but it's still it still needs it needs training there to interpret what you're seeing, you know. Um, yeah. So yeah. Um, yeah, the other thing, the other on, thing. On tr- the- on the train Ooh. on the training point of view we had aerolists there as well oh, uh, yes, Mark yeah. from Aerolis, so i think you know tim and um yeah looking at you know that that future training system coming through with that modular concept that the aerolist aircraft is so you know he, he said he said i'm almost being flippant he said but it's not beyond the, the 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 realms of fantasy to think that we can land an aircraft in one configuration the crew can go off to de- debrief and, and have lunch and come back out in the aircraft being reconfigured with maybe a bigger engine in the pod underneath or you know so you, you, that's something again i think to look at from a from a procurement point of view moving forwards you know obviously the resources are limited in terms of, of replenishing fleets of you know high value assets like aircraft so maybe something like the modular concept of aerolis is is the way forwards oh so, so somebody coming coming back from training and like what have you done with the aircraft you've you've why are the why are the wings straight now? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I meant to do that. I didn't mean to do that, honestly. Yeah. I mean, um, I think I think I think we're coming to the the end of this now. But my my final um, one of my final sort of highlights really was um, a, a lot of this is trying to trying to imagine the future. And uh, you know, there's there's ways you can do it. Speculative fiction was one one way. Uh, there was um, you know, kind of people people writing about trying probably trying to imagine the future, testing. Um, one way that was uh, highlighted on on the the second day was uh, using a consumer PC war game, basically from a small tiny video company in Epson, that is now being used by the U.S. military, uh, industry, government uh, to to basically uh, you know sort of um, war game future scenarios. Now this is this isn't really new. But what's what's interesting is one, it's a you know this is a tiny UK company that's got a uh, uh, it's a consumer war game that's got a, a, a military version, um, and if you pair it with AI, all of a sudden you 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 get this ability to explore these future scenarios on steroids. Uh, so DARPA in the US is is running. Uh, uh, a game breaker pro- project. Uh, well, it's been run by Northrop Grumman for DARPA, and it's pairing mm-hmm. uh, the uh, Command PE, which is the military version of Command Modern Operations. Uh, so this this battle space war game 
with powerful AI to run, you know, thousands, if not millions of iterations of scenarios to find the correct force wit, wit, wit mix and win most efficiently. So, you know, how many how many drones do we need? Do we need uh, do we need more SIAD shooters? How many how many decoys? Uh, does it work better if you've got more stealth aircraft, uh, less stealth aircraft? Etc. Uh, Etc. Et uh, so, so this this is he you know one one stat there on one of his slides was uh, the AI had explored tw- two hundred quadrillion game states. Oh. <laughs> but okay. from that, from that you can then have the data that to come out and 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 to to come to back to to decision makers, back to air force commanders, and and say. You know, we we think that the force mix is going to be X. These are how many, these are how many, uh, you know, kind of uh, low cost drones you might need. These are how many uh, sort of uh, loyal wingmen uh, you might need. These are how many crewed aircraft you might need. You know, because uh, wow. that is what that is again. That's one of the things that that came out is that this this mass. Uh, what what is the balance between quant, qual, quality and quantity? You know, low cost versus. Um, exquisite drones you know and and, yeah. and how do you bake there's everyone's got finite budgets even the us how do you make uh best use of this fascinating yeah brilliant well the, just the, the last thing i want to mention just so we, we go out on a on a on a smile as it were I, um <laughs> one of the closing sessions on on day two was from andrew kinniber who's uh, the director general for make uk defense which is a um a body that sits along the CBI and the Institute of Directors and people like that, so, um, but for focuses on the defence world. And yeah, he t- touched on you know the, the need to pay people properly and pay people quickly and, and all these various things. But asked to sum up how the defence industry can make things easier for SMEs and yeah, mid-tier companies to to get involved. He said um, he, he wanted to introduce a new acronym, and his acronym was SUA. He said, we all like a three-letter three-letter acronym, particularly in defence. So I'm introducing SUA. You know what SUA stands for, Tim? No. Stop using acronyms. He said it just bamboozles <laughs> everybody. And it just it just really lightened the tone of it. You know, a, 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 a very high-level look at things, but I'm, I'm going to take that away with me to SUA. I'm going to stop using acronyms. Stop using acronyms. Well, yeah, no. Um, yeah, like I say, uh, in in summary, it, it it's been a mind-expanding, fascinating uh, couple. It was a final, you know, mind-expanding uh, couple of days that we we've learned so much in such a short period of time. We're still going to be digesting it. There's still things we're going to be coming back to. Lots of contacts made, and uh, and it looks like now this is going to be an annual event. So it is coming back. I believe it is coming back in 2024. So hopefully we will see you then. Fantastic. Brilliant stuff. Well, that's it for now, I think. Yeah. Okay. Thank you.